entering the Freedom Hut. Iran says we will pay for the strike on Qasem Soleimani. Meanwhile, the media is weeping many tears over the death of this terrorist. We'll also talk about the ways the Democrats are trying to constrain President Trump's power as commander in chief. That and more coming up on The Buck Sexton Show. This, this is The Buck Sexton Show, where the mission, Your mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One Make no mistake. America. You're a great American. Again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. You don't see anyone standing up for Iran. You're not hearing any of the Gulf members. You're not hearing China. You're not hearing Russia. The only ones that are mourning the loss of Soleimani are our Democrat leadership and our Democrat presidential candidates. No one else in the world because they knew that this man had evil veins. They knew what he was capable of and they saw the destruction and, and the lives lost based from his hands. Nikki Haley is totally spot on here. Welcome to the Buck Saxon Show, everybody. I, I, am, I am somewhat aghast. I mean, I always expect it from these Democrats. So I can't say that it's a surprise, but just because you know it's coming from these leftist socialist loons, it doesn't mean that it's any less jarring when you have to see it. They're trying to find all these ways to do a couple of things here. I mean, and, and I, I want to walk you through the propaganda mill and I want to show you the machinery of what it is that they're trying to accomplish with all this as much as I can today. And one of the things they're doing is making it seem as though the Iranian people are all absolutely horrified at this, united against the regime, and that this was the killing of the killing of Qasem Soleimani was like we killed Abraham Lincoln, George Washington and Elvis Presley all at the same time. That's how much they love this guy. That's how much the Iranian people love Qasem Soleimani. Do any of them stop to think for a moment about what just happened in Iran in the last six weeks or so? The Iranian regime killed hundreds, perhaps a few thousand, murdered protesters in the streets. And for all the protesters murdered in the streets who are overwhelmingly young people who hate this corrupt sclerotic regime, for all of those people... There are also those who are being uh, extrajudicially, which is kind of in Iran. I mean, it's all extra. It might as well be extrajudicial, everything. But who are being covertly taken from their families' homes and perhaps the middle of the night, tortured and maybe never seen again because they're opponents of the regime. That is happening in Iran. You see, because the media was so desperate to prop up the Obama administration's decision, disastrous decision on Iran, and because the media hates Trump so much, they are willing to elevate the Iranian regime far out of the axis of evil. Remember, we used to call it a member of that. Iraq, Iran, North Korea. Only two left in that axis, at least as they used to be constituted. And it's worth sitting here and asking the question, well, hold on a second, hold on a minute. Would it be normal 
in the eyes of the Democrats. If, if let's just say hostilities became active with North Korea in some third party countries, so not in South Korea, you know, let's say there's there's some, you know, no, North Korean backed insurgency in some country and a North Korean general was involved in the murder of American soldiers trying to engage in peacekeeping operations, stability operations in that country. And that North Korean general was then actively plotting another round of murder of American soldiers in this country that North Korea is operating in. And we took him out. Would they then be saying, oh, my gosh, but the people of North Korea, they're all weeping and staring into the cameras and crying. They're so upset about this. It is so hard now for me to separate out how much of what we are seeing from our own media, this is their job, supposed to be their calling, to bring us the truth, tell us what's really happening in these places. That's what they're supposed to do instead. I don't know if they are just wildly dishonest hacks, if they're primarily driven by that, they're propagandists entirely the Democrats, they know what they're doing, or, and I don't know if this is more upsetting or more concerning, if they're Deeply, deeply stupid people. It could be either one. It could be both. It's most likely a combination thereof. For Exhibit A today, and there could be so many, I bring you Michael McFall. Now, those of you who follow me on Twitter know that I don't hold back on Twitter, but I also, I, I try never to be personal about things that aren't an issue of public concern, right? I never, I don't make fun of anyone, you know, I, I never make fun of anyone's appearance. I don't, I don't make jokes about, you know, their family members or anything. I mean, I, I, tr I keep it as on the subject matter as I can. And I try not to ever act like a, a jerk on Twitter, even though it's a great way to get attention. And a lot of conservatives actually do that. But Michael McFall is someone who is celebrated and still given a tremendous amount of credibility on the left, oh, Rachel Maddow will have him on to talk Russia, 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 you know, all these different people. And he was the really the architect of Obama's Russia policy for a few years and is known as a, as a you know, a critic of Putin and, and guys like Stanford, 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 Oxford, Stanford, you know, a, a stack of fancy degrees. I couldn't even fit them on top of this desk. And also at some point I have to wonder, you know, these people that spend so much time in academia, how many years... How many years just studying and not doing do you have to do? You know, you're not, you're not a neurosurgeon here. You know, maybe, anyway. Um, you know, lots and lots of books and PhD research and books and, uh, okay. And that can be great, maybe, because the idea is that you're supposed to achieve all that wisdom. This is what our elites in the academia and journalism, not journalism, of course, I mean, come on, no one thinks journalists are smart. But they, they like you to think that if they have a certain kind of resume, even though, forget about the fact that Trump went to Wharton, arguably the best business school in the world, certainly in the top three, that George Bush went to Harvard Business School, arguably the best, you know, th those guys don't count, but the degrees and the, and the fancy titles that liberals have, you're supposed to show deference, bend the knee. Okay. McFall tweeted out last night, and this just, this just ticked me off. This is a former U.S. ambassador to Russia who is treated as a real foreign policy wise elder on the left, okay? He's treated as somebody who, she, this is, he is the diplomatic establishment, if you will. He tweeted out, I do not support many of Trump's policies, 
But if Iran killed General Milley or Vice President Pence and then threatened to destroy the Statue of Liberty or the Lincoln Memorial, I would march passionately with Trump supporters to denounce the Islamic Republic of Iran. There's so much stupid in here that I could spend the entire hour trying to just unpack it. Is, is he, he? He can't be serious. Um, Vice President Pence, is, is Vice President Pence a uniformed military operating in a theater of hostilities designated as a terrorist involved in covert arming and training of globally designated terrorist organizations and then directing personally the maiming and murdering of U.S. servicemen that he is not at war with, by the way. Iran has not declared war on the United States, has been waging war against us for decades now. It's just been a one-way war. You see, here's the genius of Trump. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just put this out there for everybody. Trump doesn't like one-way wars. He doesn't like the one-way trade war with China. He's like, I think enough of this. I think we've suffered enough. I think we as the good guys just allowing them to get away with all this, we've had enough of that. So he does something about it. And Trump comes in without all the, the stack of fancy Stanford International Relations degrees and says, hold on a second. We've been doing what we've been doing in Iran for decades, really. Sanctions, angry diplomacy, sanctions. But we always are a little hands off. Ooh, we don't we don't want to we don't want to provoke the Iranians. Meanwhile, the Iranians are provoking us day in and day out. Finger in the eye. What are you going to do about it, America? And let's be serious. What have we really done about it? Well, under the Obama administration, as though we were like an Uber Eats delivery service for cash, we showed up and said, here, here's here's billions and billions of dollars. And you can keep your nuclear program, but we need to be able to see what you got so far. You don't have to dismantle it, destroy it, and prove that. You keep it the way it is, and then we'll let you get rich. Keep your terrorism going. Keep your conventional ballistic missile program going. Do whatever you got to do on that stuff. Okay, fine. One-way war with China on trade, Trump says no. One-way war with Iran throughout the Middle East, Trump says, I don't think so. But instead, we have people like or on the other hand, we have people like Michael McFall who are telling us that, you know, he's effectively taking the Iranian side of this argument. This is, this, my friends, this is crazy. I mean, how far removed is this really from saying, well, killing Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, that's really going to destabilize the region because at least then there was somebody that the Syrians and the Turks could talk to as the leader of ISIS. And I mean... Okay, you could say, Buck, well, the, the Democrats wouldn't do that. Really? Really? You sure about that? I mean, how, how far removed is this? Qasem Soleimani is different in that he is a known and named and uniformed service member of a military that is part of the axis of evil and a the biggest state sponsor of terror in the world. So that gives him... A cloak of invincibility? We're not, we're not, well, obviously not. But we were supposed to accept that? I've got to tell you, there are, there are a few times when I just become, I, I, I just have to wonder how these people can look in the mirror sometimes. You know, you have journalists from the most, the most storied, I mean, these, these pampered, 
overpaid, pompous uh, journalists at you know CNN and ABC and these places, and they're all, oh, look at the size of the of the processions in the morning and the oh my, the Iranian people are also. How many of you have seen, for example, reports from those same? I mean, Martha Roddatz was over there. I was saying, you know, look at the size of these protests. Oh, the Iranian people are all united against us now. Really? If you're an Iranian and you know, because you're one of you're part of that youth bulge that I talked to you about yesterday, because of all the people that died because of the war that did not need to be fought between Iraq and Iran, and the vicious stupidity of the mullahs in that war. Okay, but if you happen to be a person who is just mourning the loss of a family member, if you happen to be a person who lost your father, your brother, your sister, your mother in these protests, are you now all of a sudden switching things around saying, whoa, hold on a second. Yes, the regime is a totalitarian theocracy, but they killed Qasem Soleimani. George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, and Elvis compared it, uh, compiled into one. I don't think so. No critical questions being asked by the press here. No honest attempt to get to, hold on a moment, uh, are Iranian school children being told that they have to show up and protest? They're emptying out the schools, kind of like what Democrats do here, of course. You know, climate change, emptying out the schools, sending people out in the streets. Grabbing people on the street, come join the protest, or else. Here's what you have to see from the reality of the way our own press is treating this issue. Uh, they are credulously covering Iranian state propaganda, which is what this is. Protests that are done under threat of force are not an expression of the will of the people. But they're credulously covering this. Oh, we're just showing you, man. We're not, you know, we're just showing you the facts here. And are, in fact, willfully complicit in the propaganda of a terrorist regime. This is our own press. They get so huffy when Trump says that they are the enemies of the people. I've been calling them the enemies of truth for a long time because they are. How could they how could they justify this? How can they not start every report with these are very large protests? We do have substantial reporting, firsthand reporting from people who are telling us that these much of these protests are forced. And then even beyond that for a second, why are we supposed, what exactly are they trying to achieve with this? Why should we care how large the size of the protests are? I got news for you. If we took out Kim Jong-un tomorrow, and you have to make this North Korea, by the way, North Korea and Iran, buddy, buddy, work together on a whole lot of stuff. Uh, if, if, if Kim Jong-un was taken out tomorrow, do you think that there would be journalists all, all upset covering? Look at the protests. Look at the people in this country. They're so upset about the loss of Kim. And by the way, there would be a lot of people who are upset about it because they've been brainwashed. You have to ask the question, whose side are these liberal, multimillionaire, empty suits in our media? Whose side are they on? What, what exactly are they trying to convey with all of this? We don't need them to stand there, you know, faces, you know, ashen-faced, all sad. Oh, my gosh, look at these protests. What, what's going to happen to us now? They're, they're chanting death to America. 
guess what, you geniuses? They've been chanting death to America since before I was born, literally. But now, now we're all supposed to be so scared about this. Now we're all supposed to worry. Here's what I'm scared about. What we see here is yet another instance of our own press putting their anti-Trump ferocity ahead of the honest presentation of facts in their job and also doing things in such a way that you do have to wonder. You do have to sort of question some of their ideological loyalty. Do they think that Iran is an Iranian general, is someone who works for the Iranian regime in, in military uniform, engaged in the activities that Qasem Soleimani was, really similar to General Milley? Is re- really similar to our chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff or all these, all these ridiculous comparisons you're hearing all the time? So we're no better than the Iranians. Is that really what the journalists, we're no better than the Iranian regime? That's what they think. You have to wonder, the answer is, is yes. But it's particularly yes to the journos because Trump is our president. And so therefore, this Trump regime is every bit as terrifying and scary and really more so to them than anything the mullahs could ever do. We need a new media, folks. We need to tear down the journalistic establishment as it exists right now and build something new. If it wasn't clear before, it's certainly clear now, but I think it's been clear for a long time. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. In just about every foreign policy area President Trump touches, we're worse off than we were before he started with it. Looking at the president's chaotic and rudderless foreign policy in hot spots around the globe, it's hard to conclude that any of the situations are better off than when the president took office three years ago. His policies seem to be characterized by erratic, impulsive, and often egotistical behavior with little regard to a long-term strategy that would advance the interests of the United States. Is Chuck Schumer talking about the Obama administration there? Because he should be. Let's get into the specifics here of what Trump has done on the world stage so far. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, I, I can't just let this go. Democrats are out there pretending that Trump is so bad on, on foreign policy. And notice how thin they are on any supporting details. This should be easy to do. I mean, if I were to point to, for example, the Obama administration start in 20, I'm sorry, start in 2008 and end in 2016 and show me, point to a country in the world that matters to our geopolitical standing, international relations, trade, national security, you name it. Point to an important country, not some like, you know, little country no one cares about. I'm sure, you know, Obama's, you know, diplomat, did great work in the uh, in Micronesia or something. I mean, who cares? But an important country. By the way, Micronesia was, in fact, part of the coalition of the willing back in the day. I'll never forget that. That was not the Bush administration's finest moment. I think they sent one guy. Actually, one guy. Um, but the Obama administration, whether it was Libya, Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Russia, China, worse in every single case, every single instance. We were, and now you have to also look at it 
based on our position vis-a-vis those countries. I'm not, I'm not just saying that the country was worse. I don't know. No, I care about our interests. It was worse. Um, but Chuck Schumer here saying that everything Trump does on foreign policy is wrong. Really? Has he been wrong on China? Because our economy is booming and China's had the worst economy it's had in 30 years. I mean, it hasn't yet gotten the grand bargain that Trump was hoping for on trade, but they have gotten the beginnings of a phase one trade deal, it seems. And at least they're doing something. We're not just suffering in silence. One way trade war. Trump says, no, no, now it's going to be a two way trade war. And with the Iranians, people keep assuming because they want to believe this. I mean, this is the problem because they want to believe everything Trump does is terrible. Seemingly intelligent people all of a sudden become utter morons because they insist they their brain has been conditioned to think that because Trump, who, yeah, is blustery and, you know, is a little loose with the word sometimes. I mean, yeah, I get it. But I look at what he does. I look at the the essential characteristics of how he uses the power of his office, the decisions, the core decisions, the critical decisions he's been making. And I keep saying. I mean, this guy is certainly the best president since Reagan, and he's he's making gains on Reagan's like I mean, Reagan did. You know, let's, let's not forget, did defeat the evil empire of the Soviet Union. But I mean, tr- you know, Trump give him four more years. We'll see. I mean, the first I, I didn't even come into office thinking he was going to be as adept and have the kind of results that he's had so far. It's not perfect. The border, the wall, there are things that have not. But does anyone really think that perfect is going to be the way that we would judge this? But but going back to Chuck Schumer's statement, I just find it um, I find it stunning that they are so willing to make total fools of themselves here in their anti-Trump zealotry. Oh wait, speaking of making a complete fool of oneself, Bernie Sanders. On Oh, guess what? On CNN, which is <clears throat> the worst and most dishonest of the propaganda networks now on U.S. soil. Um, CNN had uh, on, on Anderson Cooper show, the very serious show. You know, that, that's the real journalism stuff happened there. Here's what Bernie Sanders um, said about the Trump decision. This is this. You got to hear this one. This is amazing. Play 44. But this guy is, you know, was as bad as he was an official of the Iranian government, and you unleash then if China does that, you know, if Russia does that, you know, Russia has been implicated under Putin with assassinating dissidents. So once you're in the business of assassination, you unleash some very, very terrible forces. Couple of things here, a a, a truly idiotic comment from the number two guy in the polls for the Democrats right now. You want you going to make him commander in chief? What he, what he says is absurd. He, go, he goes, okay, so the guy was a uniformed Iranian. So what? So what? Does that mean that we, could he show, could he partake in an assassination plot on a U.S. official in Iraq himself? But, oh, no, we can't touch him, guys. Uniformed Iranian general. Where, where's the line? What, at what point, and this is what you have to ask your, ask liberals. I mean, I know you guys already know this. At what point for the libs would would Qasem Soleimani be a legitimate target? Didn't hit him inside Iranian borders, not on his own soil. 
not in international territory, not at war. He's in a conflict zone, engaged in active hostilities against the United States and its interests. Administration says there is an imminent threat to U.S. personnel that he's directing. At, at what point are we allowed to hit this guy? Never? That's amazing. Do, do we, do you think that we have that? Do the, do the Iranians, does any country in the world, would they allow somebody to be effectively the CIA director and a four-star general at the same time and show up in a war zone and be engaged in active hostilities against another country and then be like, whoa, hold on a second. An American uniformed, American uniformed soldier. The Iranian regime wanted to kill the Saudi ambassador in D.C. at a fancy Italian restaurant that I actually happen to like in Georgetown. But oh, he wears a uniform of the Iranian regime? I mean, I'm just wondering, you know, if if back in the day, you know, one, one of, you know, if uh, if if Himmler ran out of the bunker with Hitler, we would have like, oh, well, this guy, this guy's a major player in the Nazi regime. We can, you know, can't hit him with a bomb. We should have we tried to bomb them. We tried to take them out as fast as we could. So and I'm just trying to establish what, what exactly are the lines supposed to be? And why doesn't the media seem curious at all about What's really happened here, what the reality of the threat is. They just assume that Trump and, and the administration's lying. They've already been saying this. All the administration's stories, not straight, all the administration's stories. They have so much more willingness to show opposition to their own government and think that they're being tough and being strong and being honest. That's what the journos do here. Really, they're just pandering to the left-wing Trump haters in this country, who are who are just a bunch of morons at this point. I mean, I you know, you can criticize Trump, you can think that Trump does bad things, and he certainly is worthy of criticism in a lot of ways. But the people that have just embraced TDS, Trump derangement syndrome, can't even talk to them anymore. It's not even worth it. Everything Trump does is terrible. I, I had just I talked to a very you know close friend and advisor of mine recently. He said that he had lunch with a friend who was talking about how how terrible the Trump economy is. And you just want to want to throw your hands up in the air and be like, the biggest problem in the economy right now for anybody who understands anything in this country is, is it sustainable? Can these good times last? By the way, it's probably not sustainable because of our debt, and it's another conversation. But no serious person's walking around saying, oh, the Trump economy, this is, whew, this is a tough one. Nobody thinks that, okay? No honest person thinks that. A lot of Trump deranged loons do. And yet here we are. Bernie Sanders brings up on CNN. He's, you know, did Nancy Cooper go, hold on a second, uh, you know, Senator Sanders, that was really, that was a little bit, and, and, and dig into this a little more too. What does killing, a, what does China, Russia killing dissidents have to do with this situation? Qasem Soleimani is not a U.S. citizen saying mean things about President Trump. I, how, how did he even make that comparison? Bernie Sanders isn't, is a third tier intellect, my friends. This is what everyone needs to remember. This is not a very smart guy. He's been saying the same wrong, stupid stuff for over 40 years, never figured it out, ne never seemed to understand that the stuff he believes is bad and wrong. He's an old guy, not a lot of wisdom. But do you think if China and Russia thought that they had uh, imminent danger to their, their own military or perhaps their own diplomats or who knows what the target set was from a person who had orchestrated the killing of hundreds of their soldiers in a place where they weren't at war. You think the Chinese or the Russians would hesitate for a second to take that person out?
The only way they might hesitate would be if it was a country that was considerably more powerful than them. And by the way, the only place where that would be the case would be us or each other, maybe China and Russia. They would they would do it in a second. You think they wouldn't take out an Iran? You, you, you think that Xi Jinping's like, whoa, I, if they're going to kill a few hundred Chinese in a, in a strike. But, you know, Qasem Soleimani wears a uniform, so we can't hit him. This is absurd. Uh, but this is the this is what you're getting from the so-called smarts. This we're getting from the diplomats out there, from the Obama administration. You know, they're, by the way, Michael McFall said that he blocked me because I said I called. I didn't call him a name. I hear what what did I? This just just to to close the loop on this one, to use a a DC phrase. Um, I I I said to the guy he so he said his thing about you know the the dumb thing about how he doesn't support Trump, but he would march with him if, if the Iranians killed General, I mean, uh, killed General Milley or Vice President Pence. I responded, the Obama administration pulled this guy out of the faculty lounge and made him the architect of Obama's failed Russia policy. That should be a reminder to all of us, no matter how many fancy degrees and government titles you have, it doesn't mean you know your ass from your elbow. I think that's totally fair. That's not name calling. The guy doesn't know one that body part from the other body part. I mean, I don't know what to say. I don't care how long, I don't care how many books he's written, how many degrees he has. It's just, just, just not that smart. I don't, know what, I don't know what else to say. It's not possible to believe this, to make this comparison and be somebody who you should be deeply impressed by. It's just not feasible. It doesn't work that way. And so here we are. But of course they don't... Uh, they don't believe. They don't believe what Trump has said. Um, they don't believe it. I don't think that the commander in chief would even be honest with us about this one. And then they just continue to babble on about what they would do. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Well, there's no question they're going to respond. There are lots of questions about how, but uh, we have some questions to ask of our own president. Uh, look, there is no question that Soleimani had American blood on his hands, that he was a bad actor in the region. But if there is anything that we have learned in the last 20 years about the Middle East, it's that taking out a bad guy is not necessarily a good idea. And what we've seen here is no evidence that there's been proper consultation with Congress. And more importantly, and more dangerously, no evidence that they've really thought about the consequences. Right now, my mind is with the troops who are moving to the Middle East and having known what it's like to be in the inside of one of those airplanes, uh, you need to be able to trust that everybody up your chain of command has thought through what's ahead. And we're just not seeing a lot of indications of that. Taking out a bad guy is not necessarily a good idea. Gee, I'm so glad we have... Rhodes Scholar Mayor Pete here to, by the way, McFall is also a Rhodes Scholar. I keep telling you, Rhodes Scholars are generally just people that are kiss-ups and do whatever they got to do to get the Rhodes. I, have a, I know a lot of friends, a lot of people that are Rhodes Scholars. Ooh, Bill Clinton was a Rhodes Scholar. Rachel Maddow was a Rhodes Scholar. Oh, man. It's a very politicized process, but that's a whole other thing. How could you even tell? One school, another school, everyone's getting straight A's at all these schools because everyone gets A's because once you get into these elite institutions, they just they just push you through with, oh, look at how smart everybody is from here. But if everybody's that smart, how smart is anybody really, right? These places are a joke. At Yale, the little crybabies can't even hear ideas they don't like. They can't handle watching toddlers walk around in you know a Pocahontas costume because it's so offensive. And yet here we are.
Um, Mayor Pete doesn't have any solutions, doesn't have any answers, just knows that they can't think this is the right move because Trump did it. That's all that you have to know about it. The media can't take a critical view of the Iranian regime's forced demonstrations out in the streets. And also, even if, even if they weren't forced at all, okay, the, the Iranians don't have a free press. The people don't have the right of assembly, don't have the right to organize. So is public sentiment in a totalitarianism is not something that I get particularly weepy about because the people are being brainwashed at the end of a bayonet. Does the media ever think about this? They ever take any time to consider the reality of No, of course not. Too busy, you know, making sure that their hair looks perfect and they're going to get invited to a, you know, fancy party at Richard Branson's private island or whatever. Um, uh, it's really, it, it has been an amazing uh, circumstance here to see what the, Dem but the good news for the Democrats is that as, as dumb as they look talking about this issue, which I think a part of this that gets lost is the need to reestablish deterrence as a real thing. Um, that has come back into the fore. Maybe that changes the calculation on the Iranian side. Maybe all of a sudden they'll realize, okay, we're not going to, that, it, that there's not immunity for actions against us through proxies. That's been the sort of, the secret sauce of the Iranian anti-U.S. action for the last, oh, however many years now, decades. If, if, the Iran, if an Iranian military officer isn't the one who pulls the trigger, if he just gives the terrorist that he has trained and funded and directed to go kill somebody the gun, we're not going to go, you know, I don't want to touch, can't mess with Iran, they're so scary. Iran is a little tin pot dictatorship run by mullahs with a tiny little economy. It's, it's running out of foreign currency reserves. We could, we could annihilate their infrastructure if we wanted to in a day. I'm not saying we should, but I mean, let's get real here. Walking around, oh, what are we going to do? And blowing up a bunch of stuff in Iran if we have to in retaliation for whatever they do to us doesn't mean we're, doesn't mean we're going to war. We're already in a state of war with the Iranians. You know, what, you know what keeps the Iranians from engaging in a mass casualty terror attack? Not any sense of morality or international law or anything else. The only thing that stops Iran from killing a lot of Americans and including American civilians anywhere in the world is the implied threat from the United States that we will crush them in response. That's the only thing. They would, if they thought they could do it and it was in their interest, they'd do it in a heartbeat. This is an evil regime. The people who run this country, they hang people from cranes. They murder gays. Does the media forget all of this stuff? Oh no, they're gonna compare Qasem Soleimani is, you know, just like our own, just like our own chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, and Elvis all at once. And producer Mark's favorite baseball player, Joe DiMaggio, I don't know, whoever the most of all time, is that right? Something like that. All, all the same. Is he the greatest ever? Babe Ruth? Babe Ruth, probably. Babe yeah. Ruth, okay. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Babe Ruth, Elvis, George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, all in one, Qasem Soleimani, how could we ever have touched this amazing person? That's the, that's the premise you get from the media. He's just like one of ours. Really? I don't, I don't, I don't think so, my friends. I don't think so. Um, and I, I have lost my patience for dealing with the dishonesty and the stupidity of those in the mainstream media. Um, I no longer just vehemently disagree with them. Um, I think they are worthy of contempt and disrespect in many cases. And, and I don't say that lightly. 
that's where we are now on this Iran thing, just like it's where we were on the Kavanaugh thing, too. Thanks for listening to the Bus Sex and Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's a really important cultural dynamic uh, playing out, political dynamic playing out as well across the country right now that you're not hearing very much about that I want to spend some time talking to you about today. And it has to do with the uh, the polarization of states, right, where we increasingly now have states that are single-party strongholds. We'll talk more about California later on in the show today. But there are these states out there where they've decided that they're just going to for, forget about the fact that they have many, <laughs> right, a large percentage of residents who would not agree with a certain action. They're going to enact deeply progressive left-wing policies where they can. And you've seen a little bit of this uh, in in red strongholds recently, but really just around uh, some issues like, um, you know, ab- trying to res- restrict abortion, which would be a good thing for humanity. But nonetheless, uh, there have been these these efforts that are, are ramping up, <clears throat> seeing them particularly in a lot of these blue states, because you've had over the last three years while Trump's in office, 400 state lawmaker seats that were held by Republicans uh, have gone to Democrats. So this also occurred, I would, I would have you remember, this, this occurred during the Obama years in the other direction, where Obama, he was very popular and he did very well as president, of course, won eight years in office. Very popular with Democrats, not very popular with Republicans, but he won big, big electoral victories both times around. But what people forget is that he also presided over a Democrat party that, was, that lost power in Congress and you know he lost control of the house the tea party wave in 2010 then lost control uh, later on the democrats lost control of the senate and all along there were enormous losses enormous losses um having to do with the state legislatures where republicans were in control of the state legislatures now this is very very important um for a whole bunch of reasons one of them though i, I wanted to get this out right away is that in 2020, there'll be many states that are <clears throat> up for uh, their, their districting, redistricting. They determine what the congressional, uh, congressional districts are. Now, Democrats, as they tend to do, have been fighting this when they don't like the outcome. When they don't like the outcome, the process is suspect. When they do like the outcome, the process is sacrosanct. That's how they approach everything, right? But it's certainly the case with districting uh, and redistricting, or I keep using those two words, meaning the same thing. Um, you know, there have been some court challenges. Virginia is a very good example of this, where they say, sorry, you're not allowed to do that in this way in this district. It's it's too favorable for the side that I don't like. That's the only real standard, because any congressional district is inherent. It's like drawing the borders of a country on a map. What What should the border between the U.S. and Canada really be? Well, kind of just some people in charge had a map and they drew a line on a map and that's kind of what happens. That's it. There's no, yeah, sometimes you have some natural barriers, you know, the Atlantic Ocean, the Pacific Ocean, those are our borders with Europe and Asia respectively. I mean, there's something, the Rio Grande is kind of a border, but not really. Uh, You have some areas where there's a natural border, but usually it's just lines on a map. That's true of congressional districts. And so what you have now are Democrats who are very upset and they keep saying that it's cheating, it's unfair because Republicans have drawn districts that are more favorable to 
their you know political prospects than I guess what the Democrats would want. By the way, we all know that everyone who complains about that now and any judge who even in a state like Virginia would overrule that uh, as, as has happened, they do that. And I think we all know that if it were advantaging Democrats and disadvantaging Republicans, then all of a sudden the districts are fine. No problem. Hey, what are you going to do? It's all kind of subjective. You know, they would. This is what the, the, the root, the foundation of liberalism today is hypocrisy and double standard. Right. Those are the two, the twin pillars of contemporary Democrat liberalism, socialism, hypocrisy and double standards all across the board. But the Democrats have flipped eight legislative chambers just since 2018, and they have both chambers in 19 states. Virginia is the most, uh, you know, the most most sort of battleground focused one because Virginia is a state with a lot of Republicans and a lot of Democrats. It's a purple state that I think, unfortunately, is now. Uh, I, I think Virginia is a blue state for presidential election purposes. And I don't think it's going to change anytime soon. It's really become dominated by the expansion of D.C. suburbs, notably Arlington, Virginia, and you know Loudoun County, and all these other counties that are in in Virginia that are very, very wealthy, by the way. Um, but these different Fairfax County. Uh, they've become huge population centers, and they have a big sway on Virginia going blue. And so now they're trying to push all this legislation through where they, they want to they, – they call it expanding voting access, which is always a very vague – why do they call it expanding voting access? I mean, you should not be able to vote or you shouldn't be able to vote. Why? Are, how are they expanding voting access? Oh, we'll get into some of this. Um putting in protections, state protections for abortion rights. Keep in mind, I think it was uh, Jeffrey Tubin, who is CNN's chief legal analyst, who is a garbage legal analyst. I mean, not, not good. You would not want this guy. You would rather, if you were being held in a prison in Alabama for a murder you did not commit, you would rather not just have my cousin Vinny, you'd rather actually have Joe Pesci, all five foot two of him, defending your rights and trying to keep you out of prison than I think you would have Jeffrey Tubin. Jeffrey Tubin had some tweet that after Kavanaugh was in, uh, after Kavanaugh was confirmed, he tweeted out that their abortion will be illegal in like a dozen states or something within 18 months. And it had been, it was 18 months last month and abortion is illegal statewide in zero states. But other than that, great prediction, Jeffrey Tubin. But Democrats are showing us what the plan is here, which is that if there is any reduction in the absolutist right to abortion, remember, Abortion is, is a very is not not just a very important right to Democrats because also if it, if you ever start to move away from, I mean they they inherently have to have to think they have to believe that abortion is a good thing. Now they say that it's not. They want it safe, legal, and rare. They've tried that in the past, but the uh, the public admission through law that you want less abortion, even though about seventy to eighty percent of the population, depending on the poll you're talking about opposes late-term abortion. They understand there's some problems in some abortion procedures. Um, if, if that is ever enshrined in laws, if there, are, or if there are limitations, restrictions on abortion at the state level, if some states say, sorry, we think this is unethical and this is immoral, then you would have a circumstance where Democrats would have to come face to face with, they think that a right, that there can be a right to do something that is bad. Find me another right 
to do something that is bad, that is immoral, that is, you have a right to do something that is immoral and bad and wrong. Um, and not like subjectively bad as in, well, you know, speech can be mean and offensive. No, no, no. I mean, you have a right to do something that is, that is a wrong. It can never be right to do a wrong. It's actually one of the preferred sayings from my old mentor at Amherst, Professor Hadley Arkes. He used to say that all the time. He was right, by the way. But Democrats are showing us what the plan is, which is to protect abortion um, across the board in as many states as possible. And they protect it as an absolutist right. You know, there's special, you can't even, you know, stand in the, in the, in the doorway of an abortion clinic and try to pass out literature against it. But, you know, there's all these things. It's this, they, they create all this additional legislation and, and regulation so that abortion access, they call it now, becomes. So, and they say abortion is healthcare. So really it should be paid for by the state, which means you should pay for it. This is a right that now exists, they say, that cannot be restricted, that you should pay. Forget the Hyde Amendment. They've abandoned that. I mean, they've become extremists on abortion, even compared to where they were 20 years ago, 10 years ago. Now they're like, nope, not only should you, you should have to pay for it. The government should fund it. And you should have no say in this. You cannot try to, uh, you know, stand in the way of the, the doorway of an abortion clinic. And, oh, by the way, if, if an illegal alien comes uh, into the country, that person's abortion should be paid for with taxpayer dollars, too. That's where we are. So states are now trying to make sure they already have legislation in place in case Trump judges are, are in fact, the difference maker here. And I say this, and people, I've had people kind of push back on this, you know, conservatives when I brought it up with them, but. You know, for all of Trump's imperfections and his uh, personal his personal failings, I think you could say, in his in his personal life, which I know, you know, again, look, it's fair game, but it's also you don't want to be too harsh on this stuff. But for all of that, how do how would we judge it? Speaking of judge, kind of a sloppy transition here, but the, this president Trump is better on judges than any Republican president in my lifetime. I think you could argue probably any Republican president for as long as we've had the political issues at hand that we do. So, I mean, you go back a couple of generations. He's the best Republican president for the appointment of Supreme Court judges in 100 years, easily. I mean, I don't know if you want to go before that, but it was kind of different stuff. So he's unbelievable. I mean, he's been fantastic with the federal judges he's appointed, and Mitch McConnell, give him credit too. Cocaine Mitch getting the job done. He's putting people into positions, lifetime ten, lifetime uh, positions, appointments across the federal judiciary that's going to have a really major impact for a very long time. And, you know, Trump has been excellent on these judges. If, in fact, a, another opening comes up in the next, assuming Trump wins re-election, which we know we don't, we're not counting our chickens before they hatch here. Assuming Trump wins the next election, though, and he manages to appoint someone along the lines of a Gorsuch or a Kavanaugh. Although we don't know how, we don't know how conservative and constitutionalist Kavanaugh really is yet. You know, we don't know. We know he didn't run a secret gang rape ring back in the day, unless you're a total lunatic and a moron who believes that still. But you know, we we don't know how good he is on some of these issues. But if Trump's election and his appointment results in a change in abortion law at the Supreme Court level. And that then means that it becomes a state's issue, which is what these states are all doing to prepare for it. 
meaning that the, the blue legislatures, even in states like like Virginia that are kind of purple, right? The California is a separate issue where it's just blue and there's no hope of changing anytime soon. We'll talk about that later. But in Virginia, where it's it's a purple state, um, trending blue, they're trying to put these these laws in place while they can. You know, this is kind of like what the Democrats did with Obamacare. Oh, we have a kind of an anomaly here. We have control everywhere. Just forget about the other side. Just do it. To, just do it to them. Just just ram your progressivism down their throats. And but on on, on abortion specifically, they're preparing for this because if Trump's judges do anything that restricts abortion or, or just no longer has this this writ from on high of the Supreme Court that abortion is the law of the land and there can be no state restrictions on it. You know, and Planned Parenthood v. Casey isn't even, is really where this could happen, um, where you have the special category of abortion in our law. Never mind, I mean, the, the Roe v. Wade decision is a horrible decision, but just based on the legal aspects of it, never mind the moral but then you look at Planned Parenthood v. Casey, where you added all of this. Now abortion is a right that must be protected along the lines of how people think of, um, you know, voting rights. It's not just you have a right to be able to vote, but, you know, it's like, well, you can't, you know, you can't have a polling place move from here to there. And there's all these other things that get added into it to make it a right that is an effective right. right? So if you have some of those restrictions that come as a result of a change from the Supreme Court because of Trump judges... And this is what I'm really trying to get to here, but no one really thinks of it this way. How many lives will Trump have saved? How many lives will, will, will Donald Trump be directly responsible for saving if the judges that he appoints, specifically judges that he has appointed the Supreme Court, are the deciding factor in rolling back uh, the current regime of abortion in this country, such that not every state will, of course, outlaw Some states will, California will have it exactly as it is right now. But there will be states where it's still practiced, uh, where all of a sudden it will be in doubt or perhaps be eliminated entirely. How many lives will he be responsible for saving? I think that's a very real calculation that we should keep in mind as you know, the president. People say, oh, my, my judges, this is the line you'll hear. Like conservatives and you know, evangelicals, for example, have been getting so much heat recently because they overwhelmingly, I think 80 to 90 percent of them support Donald Trump. And people say, oh, well, that's so hypocritical because evangelicals are, are supposed to care about character and they're supposed to care about, you know, this and the other thing. And to that, I just say, well, hold on a second. Evangelicals care about the president of the United States defending their, their interests, their rights and pushing moral policy. And, you know, I, I take it in the other direction. I say Catholics that support people like Nancy Pelosi as a Catholic, which is what she loves to say, of course, even though she's you know, pushing for the policies that I think would make... Uh, Beelzebub grin. Um, I don't know how Catholics are okay with with the stuff the Democratic Party is doing and still consider themselves to be in any reasonable or any meaningful way uh, believing Catholic. So that's that's a part of this. But but then there's the issue of guns, which I wanted to transition us to. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Virginia is a state that I've spent a lot of time in. I have uh, family still in Virginia, and I used to spend one or two major holidays a year. Usually it was either Thanksgiving or Fourth of July or both in Virginia, seeing my grandmother down there. And, uh, you know, we, we've always had this connection to Virginia as a family as a result. And, I mean, meaning my immediate family. And, you know, we think of it as the South, and obviously you go back and, you know, the history of, 
history of this country. It clearly, you know, you know, Richmond's role in the South and everything. I mean, we're very aware of Virginia as the South, but, you know, it's starting to feel a lot less like the South in the sense that it's gone bluer and bluer in recent years. And that's where you have the situation now. And this is, by the way, also why I talk about hypocrisy and the way the Democrats will abandon principles they pretend to care about for political expedience. Governor Northam, the guy who was wearing blackface in the photo, but he couldn't remember if he was in the Klan robe or if he was the blackface guy or how many times he did it, and he lied about it. That guy is the governor of a state where right now you have Democrats in control of both parts of the state legislature. And so he was very necessary for the plan of trying to push very aggressive, progressive policies in a state where there's certainly a large contingent of Republicans, conservatives who are not on board for this at all, and they just don't care. Democrats have now taken it. And it's part of this, I think, is a reflection also of the the polarized era we are in when it comes to Trump. Democrats have taken an attitude in these states of we're just going to do as much as we can, as fast as we can when we have power, irrespective even really of, of the possible long term political risks. And that is where we get to this plan in Virginia, which I've I've mentioned it a couple times in the show. We haven't gotten into all that much detail about it, but there is this plan in Virginia to ban semi-automatic rifles that are deemed assault rifles. And you may have a situation where, I mean, it depends on how this is enforced, but you may have a situation where you have you know law enforcement going to people's homes and under the law, I mean, if it's banned, it's banned. If it's illegal, it's illegal. And now people are going to be arrested in the state of Virginia. I mean, this isn't, you know, this isn't Massachusetts or California or some of these places that you would expect uh, might be arrested for having a semi-automatic rifle that has certain cosmetic characteristics that liberals find scary. That's what we're heading for. And that also then brings me to uh, sanctuary jurisdiction. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, so what, what is a sanctuary jurisdiction in the context of you, you have this, this Democrat control of both parts of the legislature for Virginia, and you have uh, a governor. And remember, they, they, they thought maybe for a while, okay, we're going to push the governor out, but then you had, I think, Justin Fairfax just below the governor who was accused by two different women of, of sexual assault. And so that then all of a sudden, and this all happened roughly at the same time. And, and then if he also stepped down or, or couldn't take over the governor's role for Northam, um, you had Mark Herring, who had his own like blackface issue in his past. Where, and he initially called for Northam to step down. So you could have had, you know, one, two, three, the top three of the state of Virginia on the executive branch side effectively stepped down or pushed out or gone, whatever, resign. So that's why they're like, all right, we're just going to keep Northam. You got Northam still in place. Now, remember, Northam's the guy who not only had the blackface situation in his past, but also talked far too openly and honestly, I think is what you'd have to say, about how, you know, if, 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 a, if a child of an abortion was born alive, uh, you know, you'd want to, like, be nice to it and comfort it before you, before you kill it. 
this is what he said. He said it on radio. You can all hear it for yourself. Democrats pretend that this is scaremongering or this isn't a real thing. Or the guy said it. He meant what he said. He hasn't. Ba- and also, no one has ever said that that that's not the reality of the law in Virginia. And Democrats are trying to make that now. They're trying to enshrine that as the law at the state level. And then that brings me to this this gun issue and, and the the notion of sanctuary jurisdictions. Now, here's where. The standard set by liberals, which and it's really a standard of we have no standards other than we want power, we will achieve power, we will do what is necessary. The standard set by liberals here is more or less uh, being replicated by Republicans. Liberals do it with immigration. They've just decided, you know, they've just decided on their own for whatever reason that they are in a position to... Um, not enforce immigration law, right? Sanctuary cities, as you know, and there's hundreds and hundreds of them across the country. And what they're saying is that they will not, state and local law enforcement will not be a part of federal law that mandates that you can't be in the country illegally. And that has, of course, other provisions that come into play as well. Uh, They will not be a part of it. And they will, in fact, do what they can to make it harder. They will not extend courtesy assistance to federal law enforcement, immigration and customs officers. They will not honor detainer requests. So when someone's already in prison who's an illegal alien in sanctuary jurisdictions, they will not hold them until ICE can show up and take custody of them. They won't even do that. Uh, They will not even notify in some cases they have an illegal alien in custody. And there's the fight underway right now. This administration, the Trump administration, has been waging this battle trying to say, hey, hold on a second. You know, you, you can't just... You can't just do this. You can't just uh, pretend that the law isn't the law and that law enforcement, even at the state and local level, has no role to play in assisting the federal government. Of course, the states, the Democrats have now all of a sudden established or, or have uh, discovered states' rights, which, as we know, has a very negative connotation uh, in many contexts for other reasons. But Democrats have established or have figured out that there are states' rights, such as uh, in this case, would make it impossible or, or not a, a legal duty for them to do what federal law enforcement wants them to do. Okay. Now, let's get back to the sanctuary gun situation here. What that is, is that you have people in sheriffs in certain towns, uh, cities of Virginia, who have, have already said, look, we're just, we're not going to do this thing that you want us to do, where we're going to start arresting people and enforcing this law against assault rifles. We're just not going to do it, um, which is going to be very interesting. Now, that is, keep in mind, it's a little different than sanctuary cities. In sanctuary cities, it's state and local law enforcement saying we will not assist or in any way enforce federal immigration law. Now you have people at the state level who are law enforcement officers paid by the state, working for the state, who are saying, sorry, not going to do it. This is nullification of the people in charge, nullification of laws of the people in charge of enforcing the laws. Now, I understand why they would do this, um, because it's, it's outrageous that the Virginia state legislature and this sort of progressive frenzy wants to ban assault. I'm sure there are other things they're planning on doing, too, in the, in the realm of, of gun control. There's more specifics um, that... They're going to try to throw in the mix here and do other things that would be uh, particularly onerous for gun owners. Because remember, much of the gun control agenda is really about 
agitating and otherizing people who believe in the Second Amendment and who own guns. Much of what they are really trying to accomplish with some of this legislation is just to, you know, thumb their nose at, to spit in the faces of people who are their political opponents who tend to be Second Amendment supporters. But what happens, my friends, uh, what happens when you have a circumstance where now Democrats decide that certain state laws will just not be enforced. Now, the drug thing, by the way, is another another situation, but the federal government has kind of said, okay, but we have a lot of laws in this country right now that you start to say, what exactly is the law? Where does the law stop and start? You've got immigration law that is not enforced by state and local governments and sanctuary jurisdictions, and that the federal government seems unable to enforce. And when you're unable to enforce a law, there's certainly an argument you made that it has ceased to be a law. So the federal government has fallen down on the job in this regard. So then you have to ask, okay, well, where else do we have laws that are not being treated as law? Look, I'm, and some of you get very mad at me on this one, and I understand. I I know that there are are very strong feelings around uh, marijuana legalization and whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. I mean, the states that have made it de facto legal, although it's not legal, I mean, the federal government still has under the Controlled Substances Act, uh, under the first section of it, right, Schedule 1, controlled substances, marijuana is still on there. So it's still very much illegal, but states are allowed. But you see, I, I understand that this it, it starts to get a little confusing in this tangle of all these different laws, but... You can understand how anybody look at this would say, okay, so is the law just no longer a law when some people decide that it doesn't count anymore? Don't we have legislatures that are supposed to repeal things, amend things, change things? Is this just turning into... Because what really separates America from a lot of other countries that have, you know, a lot of natural resources, good weather, you know, what exactly separates us from places... What separates us from most of Latin America, for example? That, that's, a, that's a good place to start. What separates America from Latin America? Um, well, we have rule of law. And anybody who spent any time in Mexico or a whole bunch of other countries in Central and South America would tell you very uh, assuredly that rule of law in those countries is kind of a non-existent or barely existent. It's one of the most important things that separates us from those countries, and and it contributes to our security, our prosperity, uh, you know, our our freedom. Rule of law is very much about freedom. If you understand what the laws are in a country, you can operate accordingly, and you you can have an expectation that your freedom will be respected, and the state will protect your freedoms because you know what those laws are. When it's just a kind of sometimes yes, sometimes no, how can you even make a real determination about that? So while I understand the impulse from sheriff, look, you know, the other part of it is it's not even necessarily nullification of laws for sheriffs. Then it just turns into prosecu- a form of prosecutorial discretion, which all law enforcement has. You know, if a cop on the scene thinks, you know, if you were speeding, but a cop thinks that, you know, oh, you're actually trying to get your wife to the hospital. He has, he has. He's completely within his rights to say, I'm going to give you a warning. You're welcome to go. Right? I mean, can a sheriff just say, hey, you know, I saw you at the range with, you know, if this sheriff pulls up the range to do, a, you know, his own target practice, well, I'm sure he has his own range. You get what I'm saying. You see somebody in Virginia after with this law in effect now banning assault rifles. 
assuming, but they're trying to do this in the next 60 days, so it hasn't it hasn't happened quite yet. That's why I can't give you that many specifics on exactly what's going on here. But if a sheriff sees somebody, can't you just say, hey, buddy, be careful with that because, you know, it's technically illegal, but, you know, take it home with you. Don't worry about it. Yeah, of course. So is that is that a dangerous nullification? Well, no, it's not. But we need to understand here that you have a Democrat impulse in a state where there are a lot of people that very much disagree with what is trying to be what they're trying to accomplish here. There's a Democrat impulse to make criminals of Republicans, to uh, criminalize their Second Amendment rights, and to institutionalize as much as possible the furthest left parts of their agenda. And this is resulting in a state by state polarization where there's, you know, I keep talking about the, the eradication of good faith in the era of Trump in our politics. I really mean it. It's a real thing. You know, you, you can't trust that your, your fellow Americans who are liberals or who are Democrats are willing to defend your free speech rights anymore because there's a really large movement within the left. I would say it's the dominant force in Democrat politics today to, to say, no, sorry, certain things. You can't, certain things are too mean. You're not allowed to say them. Certain things are too controversial. You're not allowed to say them. In the Second Amendment, what, what do you, if, if the Bloombergs of the world got their way, I mean, you know, Bloomberg is very opposed to um, guns. Um, if they got their way, what exactly would, what would you be allowed? You'd be allowed to maybe get a, a special permit to have a double-barreled shotgun that you could use to go, you know, sporting clay shooting, you know, go trap shooting sometime? That's that's the full extent. I mean, what would your Second Amendment rights really be? Oh, yeah, you can defend your home with a double-barreled shotgun, so that's all you need. This is, this is taking us down to a, uh, a scary place. Uh, what you're seeing in Virginia, if, if this is a harbinger of things to come in other purple states across the country where Democrats have legislative control for a period of time. You know, it's one thing to pass a law that says the tax rate the state tax is 7%. No, it's actually 9% or it's 8%. Okay, I mean, you could switch that back and forth. But you're going to start going door to door and, and sending law enforcement to go arrest people for this? And if you're not going to do that, why would you ban assault rifles? What, what does that mean? You're just going to ban new sale of assault rifles? There are, I'm sure, a few million assault rifles currently in circulation in Virginia. I don't even, I mean, I can't, no one even really knows the number. So you're just going to make sure that everyone's, and you're still going to have legal sale of them in other in other states. So if possession of them is not illegal and you're just going to ban new sales, you're just making it a lot more expensive for people to get an AR in Virginia. So if you're going to really try to get rid of them, you're going to have to arrest people for them. You have to criminalize them. Are Democrats at the state legislature of Virginia willing to do that in this crazy period we're in? It seems the answer is yes. It's very troubling. It should put everybody on edge. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. During the run-up to the passage of Obamacare, President Obama promised my father that if he likes his plan, he can keep his plan, and that his insurance will be cheaper. After passage, his plan was no longer allowed, and his insurance costs doubled. Since you supported the plan, were you lying to my dad, or did you not understand the bill you supported? The lying dog-faced pony shoulder. No, look, there's two ways people know when something is important. One, when it's so clear when it's passed that everybody understands it, and no one did understand Obamacare, including the way it was rolled out and the gentleman's right. He said you could keep your doctor if you wanted to, and you couldn't keep your doctor if you wanted to necessarily. He's dead right about that. 
you know, Joe Biden makes these two admissions here. And it's, it's all you really have to know about the Democrats today is that this is this is their best. This is the guy that they're putting up to set everything right and make everything great in this country. I and mean, Joe Biden's a buffoon, a buffoon. But he he just kind of blithely, insouciant, insouciantly. I don't know if that's really a word, but in an insouciant manner, it's a fancy French word for like cool as a cucumber, um, says that nobody understood Obamacare when it was rolled out and you couldn't keep your plan. And I just want to point out that I was saying that at the time, conservatives really across the board were saying this at the time, and what we were saying was absolutely true. And yet Democrats shouted us down, demagogued the issue, rammed it through, and still pretend like Obamacare was was great. And Obamacare is effectively an expansion of Medicare, I'm sorry, an expansion of Medicaid, uh, healthcare welfare, in a whole bunch of states, which adds dramatically to the deficit, but that's what it is. And also then does a little bit of shifting where some people get a little bit of subsidy to have kind of, you know, not so great insurance, and other people um, don't get subsidies, pay a little more, pay more than they should, and are strained in order to try to pay the insurance. And that's this is what this did. We had this huge fight. Democrats just, just did everything, went to the mat, used reconciliation, uh, kind of a budgetary maneuver that's not supposed to be meant for major legislation to get the last piece of Obamacare, last parts of Obamacare through. They used budget reconciliation. And all for what exactly? And now we're still here we are, right? It's been three years since Obama, the Obama administration was in power. And we're talking about health care. Now we've got a whole new health care thing. You would think that maybe there could be some humility from the central planners as a result of this. Maybe they would take a moment to think, hold on a second. We thought we were these geniuses last time. We're going to figure this all out. And we completely messed the whole thing up. Maybe this time around, we should have a little bit more of a collaborative approach with the people that have real concerns about this and try to make things better. You'd think that the fact that Joe Biden has to say, you couldn't keep your plan, even though we said you could keep your plan. That's a big deal because that was a huge part of getting the buy-in and it was never a particularly strong buy-in but getting the buy-in of the american people they figure okay this won't affect me that much in the individual market i can i can keep my plan if i like my plan and it turned out it was a big lie here's the problem i have with with well i got a lot of problems with this but here's one of the big problems i have folks democrats never learn the lesson they never learn the lesson they refuse to accept that we've run this experiment where they just did exactly what they wanted to do. It was all Democrats on a single Republican vote. They did exactly what they wanted to do. They lied about what they were doing in order to get it done. Now here we are, you have Democrats running. What's their primary you know, rallying cry against Trump as a policy matter other than Trump is Hitler? They want Medicare for all or some you know vast expansion of Medicare or you know some I- enormous add on to Obamacare that would be maybe a public option. They never figure out that we've already seen. They don't have the ability to do what they think they can. They will mess things up. They will make your health care worse. They will make it more expensive. I it, it, Guaranteed. And yet they never step back and say, hold on a second. Maybe we should learn a lesson from how we've already messed this thing. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. So some states are coming up with 
whole bunch of uh, these new progressive laws. California, though, is the laboratory of liberal insanity, as you know. California, which, as I like to point out to you, used to be a Republican stronghold, which people completely forget now. When gave, we had you know President Nixon, President Reagan. These guys came from California, the California political system. California was a red state until basically the 90s in presidential elections, reliably red. Not every time, but but usually. Um, and now, I mean, it, it is the, the belly of the blue beast. I mean, California is liberalism distilled down to its most insane parts. By the way, I think I'm actually going to be in California in a couple of weeks, so I'll come back with some stories from the the front lines of liberal insanity there. Although I mean, I'm in New York City, which is basically as bad. We just have a slightly more capitalist outlook, I guess. I don't know. Uh, I, I'm not even sure we do, actually. New York is probably in some ways as bad as California. We have Staten Island, though, at least. Republican stronghold of Staten Island. Yeah. Um, but the, there's all kinds of new laws in California that are going to affect some that will have a real, a real impact on things. And here is... One, for example, <laughs> this is just amazing. Play, uh, play uh, clip one, producer Mark. This is a new water use law in California. Play one. All right, this one, I'm not sure how I feel about this. You're not going to be allowed to shower and do a load of laundry in the same day. I, I, I had the, the same misgivings. Um, doing a load of laundry takes about 40 to, to 50 gallons of water. Uh, taking a shower for about eight minutes takes about 17 gallons of water. Well, there's a limitation on your daily use of water of 55 gallons per day. So that means if you are taking a shower and you're doing a load of laundry, you can't do both without being in violation of the law. Um, there are some exceptions about this. There are some caveats. Uh, for instance, if you have a multi-person household, if you have four people in your household or three people in your household, that 55 gallon limit per day applies in uh, for each person. So it, you could do a load of laundry um, if you have a multi-person uh, household. And, and okay. So who's going to police gonna, that? Yeah. Gonna cuff Mark Christie when yeah, he's yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. that What's going on? Who's enforcing this? Well, yeah. you, you can actually see your, your water uses on a daily rate uh, with your water meter. $1,000 a day, folks, if you were to take a shower and do a load of laundry in California as a single person. That'll have more than 55 gallons of water usage in that, they estimate. And they already have these water you know, water meters set up. You're going to see your water usage. This is what they've done. This is what liberal left-wing socialist policy has done to a state that in many ways is the most blessed piece of land of, you know, anywhere in the United States. I mean, California, the California coastline is incredible. It's gorgeous. It has amazing weather. I mean, California has all these different climates. You got, you know, you go up in the north, San Francisco area. It's great for wine growing. Go down south, you have like sunny weather. That's you can wear, you know, board shorts and a t-shirt year round if you want, or socks with Birkenstocks if you want to rock it like producer Mark does. Do you do you ever do the socks? No, he just he's not like he's not in he's not on board for that. That was a thing for a while. People used to wear socks with Birkenstocks. You remember that? Hippies. So. California is going to start fining you $1,000 a day if you use too much water. Um, you'd have to wonder, wh why is there such a, a, a precarious condition for water usage in the state? Well, it's because a lot of it has to do with the management of water by the authorities. And just like they, they don't manage their forests well, they don't manage their water well. You'd think a state where they're obsessed with environmentalism would be a little bit better at this. You'd think that a state where there's so many people that spend so much time, so much of their time, 
thinking about all these issues would be in a position to be better at dealing with them. But that is, sure enough, not the case. That is not what ends up happening. They are not good at dealing with this at all because they take a statist, collectivist approach to these issues. And they believe the loony climate change left's rhetoric. They put it into action. Um, and here, here's this. This was, a, this was a local California TV station. They're having this. And you can tell the anchors are like, wait, what? This new law is going to affect in 2020? Play clip two. Uh, now, there are actually fines available for this as well. Your, your first, your, your violation is $1,000 per each day I, that you are in violation. Wait, who who made this a law? Let's, uh, let's talk to them. <laughs> it's the state legislature. The governor signed this into effect. It goes into effect January 1st. Now, there's also another caveat. If we're in drought conditions and the governor declares an emergency, that fine can go up to $10,000 a day. So be careful. You know, you, oh could, my. You, you could change your word to serenity to anger now. Wow. You're not going to be able to shower in 2020. Well, you know what? I'm going to pick doing laundry over showering. So, so all of a sudden, I can smoke marijuana as much as I want, but I can't take a shower. Yeah, it's, it's Un- a Unbelievable. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's yes. where our country is. Because <laughs> I can smoke marijuana as much as I want. I can't take a shower. I mean, it's kind of true. <laughs> That's what Cal- California, the streets are covered in feces. The middle class is fleeing. The taxes are too high. The crime rate is rising. You can't take a shower, but you can smoke all the weed you want. Well, I'm looking forward to my trip there in a few yeah, weeks. I was going to say, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm heading out there, so I'll let you guys know. And no plastic straws. I hate that. Do you know what the percentage is of plastic in the oceans that comes from the United States? It's like less than 2%. We basically put no pla- uh, We We have stopped using plastic in this country for things that are useful under the idea that we are somehow trying to stop like sea turtles from choking, which I like sea turtles. I don't want them to choke. But the plastic is not coming from us. You know where the plastic is coming from? It's actually a, a lot of it is driven by major river systems into the ocean. And those major river systems are in Asia and Africa. That is where a vast majority of the plastic that is making its way into the oceans is coming from. Do you think they're like, we're going to stop using plastic straws? This is what I mean. They don't, they don't think. Identify the problem. Figure out the solution. See if the cost-benefit analysis is worth it. They don't do this. They just go, oh, my gosh, there's a thing. And I have these preconceived notions about how I view the world, and then there's this problem, and I'm not going to look at whether the problem would actually even be addressed by the way I'm going to approach it, but it'll make me feel good because the problem is so scary. Well, climate change is a perfect example of this, but plastic in the ocean is another one. I tell them, I would tell Libs, hey, you're not making things any better by doing this thing you're doing, and they would say, why do you want sea turtles to choke on plastic? And I'd say, I don't, but they don't care. They don't care. There's no, this is... It's getting harder and harder, folks. You know, I, I wish that there was even a place where you could have uh, reasonable, interesting debate with liberals on these issues. But you can't anymore because how, how do you debate with somebody who, when presented with this, is just going to say, well, we have to show leadership. I mean, liberalism today, uh, progressivism is just drowning in its own sanctimony all the time. It's just, just, oh, oh it's heaps of it, all of it. Oh, I'm so great. I'm so amazing. Why? What makes you so great and so amazing? Oh, because I do these things that liberals do. Mm -mm. Not good enough. Not good enough. But then again, they don't care because it feels so good. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. 
California's obviously got some very, very bad ideas, but I, I wanted to just say that we, we're at the point now where maybe we should create a just a recurring segment on the show, which is really bad ideas from Democrats running for president right now. Like the, the things that they say that are not, not just the things that are untrue or unfair, but just the, the fact that they don't even really understand what the consequences would be of some of the things that they are very much pushing for. Uh, you have, for example, minimum wage is another a great a great example of this. I keep saying minimum wage is very popular. Even conservatives or Republicans, you know, people like it. But minimum wage is something that does not work as advertised uh, for most people. For some people, it does. Some people will make more money who are workers because of minimum wage. Some people have their hours cut back. Some people lose their jobs. Some people have automation instituted that will either limit or cut back their hours. I mean, there's all these different ways of dealing with the imposition of cost via central planning, which is, in fact, what you have through the minimum wage. Senator Bernie Sanders does not care. And so he runs around saying that we need a what he calls a living minimum wage. Please play producer brand, uh, producer Mark, pardon me, <laughs> clip 11. Bottom line here is that we need a federal minimum wage for every state in this country, which is a living wage, at least $15 an hour. Now $15 an hour is not a lot of money, but it is better than seven and a quarter or nine or $10 an hour. Second thing we need to establish in America is that women must earn equal pay for equal work. All right, let's deal with both of these bad Democrat ideas, shall we? <clears throat> equal pay for equal work. Uh, you have a $15 minimum wage. And we, we have to keep returning to this because people, it's, I understand there's an emotional, so much of central planning, so much of socialism is pushed not by what works, but by what feels good or sounds good to people. And I understand why so many would say, look, can we get a little more money to people who are, if you're working for in an hourly job, you know, chances are, I mean, yeah, there are people at law firms that are making $800 an hour, although usually they don't get to keep a big piece of that. They get to keep a small percentage of it if they're working at a big firm. But usually if you're an hourly worker, you tend not to be making a very high wage. And so, you know, when you're talking about hourly workers, Anybody who's making minimum wage or rather who's affected by minimum wage legislation <clears throat> is going to be someone who benefits from this. And, and you want to help those people, right? You want people that are showing up, doing a job, being productive, doing what they're supposed to do. You want them to have what they need and to be able to get ahead. Um, of course, getting ahead financially also involves uh, decision making and planning and some degree of luck. These are all things that people don't talk about on the left. They just pretend that there's a way that we can all be living in some glorious future where there's no deprivation, there's no economic insecurity, um, there's no want or need that is not met by the dictates of the state. $15 minimum wage. Let's deal with this one real quick. Why not 30? Why not 50? I, I, because, oh, and then they would say, oh, that's absurd. He'd say, okay, it's absurd. Why? It's absurd because at some point the cost is too high for the business to even be able to function at all. And so then you say, well, 
and I haven't even brought up how, well, in some cases, maybe they, it'll be good for workers, but then you're just passing the costs on to the consumer. So, I mean, the money's coming from somewhere because ultimately the cost is the cost. Ultimately, the market is has determined what the cost of labor is for a certain kind of job in a certain place. And, you know, you're either going to accept that and let the market determine it, or you're going to make a determination external to those market forces based upon what you think is fair, what you think is right, based upon, you know, what people feel, really, which is what this is. Bernie Sanders, $15 an hour. You know, that's just a number that he's picked out of out of the air. I mean, you could do this with any number of things. What would happen if you said, you know what, guys, let's just make let's just make all, you know, you you, you can't have a an apart or you can't have a house that is, you know, two bedrooms or less that costs more than a hundred thousand dollars. Okay, well in some places maybe that wouldn't be such a big deal, but in most places it would be a huge problem across the country. And what would happen if you set that artificial price for housing? You would have massive housing shortages. Builders wouldn't be able to, you know, wouldn't be able to make a profit. They wouldn't be able to, you know, you go down the whole list, right? There are all of these, there are forces that are at work beyond just the dictates of the government when it comes to decisions like this. And yet Bernie Sanders <coughs> pretends that it can just be a decision made by government in this way. Yeah, I'm not saying that, you know, they, they raise the minimum wage. Everything, everything's going to be catastrophic and then everyone's going to go out of business. No, of course not. But there will be problems that come from this. And it doesn't also deal with some of the underlying issues of, well, if somebody, if someone's labor is worth seven fifty an hour and we start paying them $15 an hour, it doesn't deal with the, well, what about the fact that that, that labor is only worth $7.50 an hour? This is what pushes people to automation. Companies, I mean, to automation. This is what has other forces that are at work that you don't necessarily see just based on the take-home pay of certain people that are affected by minimum wage. Anyway, this is it's another one, Democrat idea, but pe- people like this one. Minimum wage. You got to have a minimum wage. All right. And then there's uh, equal pay. I don't know how to really deal with this other than just say it's a lie. They know it's a lie. They don't care. They keep saying that, you know, equal pay is is a, a problem that needs to be dealt with via legislation. They keep saying that equal pay is something that um, the government must take action on. The reality is that whenever you look at a study of this, whenever you see people really crunching the numbers, women are not paid less for doing the same work as men. That's just not how that's not how employment works. That's, that's not that's not the reality of the employment market because if you have first of all, you have more women graduating from college right now, for example, than you do men. So there's already an enormous influx of college educated females into the workplace all across the country. Um, if you line up the comparison so that's apples to apples, you'll see that. This just isn't, there's no, it is not rooted in reality. Um, But you can also just look at it and say, well, if I could save 30%, this is the quickest way. The same way that I know that climate change is is nonsense, the way the libs talk about it and set it up, because they're not going to sell me, they're not going to sell me a house in Malibu for a fraction of the cost right now because of climate change. Right on the beach, man. That water is going to be rising really fast if we're going to be all dead or starting in, well, not all dead quite in 12 years. But if we're on a path to the eradication of the species in 12 years, that's not very long. You're going to be along the coastline. That's going to be a big problem, right? No. 
when it comes down to it, when the truth of what they say is a disadvantage to them, they ignore what they are saying. When you take it to its logical ends, it no longer matters. With equal pay, you can have a similar experiment. All you do is say, okay, well, if I can save 30% of my labor costs and I'm a, I'm a aggressive capitalist, somebody who wants to make a lot of money, who wants my business to be highly effective, you know what I do? I just hire only women. They're doing the same work. It'd be great. I mean, you know, I love producer Mark, but if we could cut 30% of the labor costs by getting somebody just who happens to be the female producer Mark to come in here and we cut 30% of, of the salary, that would be a pretty enticing thing for executives. By the way, we, Marquette, what would we call her? Uh, I'm not sure. Yeah. Do I have to get gender reassignment to keep my job now? I'm just telling you, man, that if we could save 30%. You'd fire me in a second. I mean, I'm not saying I would, but somebody would. <laughs> if we could save 30% on you, you, you know, and it's true of me too. I mean, if they could have female buck doing the radio show, same show. That's true. Same host, same mm. numbers, you know, same same sponsorships and money coming to the show. They save 30%. Of course they would find, you know, it would be crazy not to. Just get a male or female worse than us and but, pay but them people, less. Yeah, but, mm. but people don't do this. And the reason they don't do this is because the underlying premise is not true. The underlying premise being that, you know, women are just paid less because they're women, because there's this patriarchy and all this stuff. But it's something that sounds good to Democrats, so they keep saying it, even though the reality is not what they offer up. The reality is not what they say. And at some point, you know, we just have to look at this and say, well, when is when is the media well, going to the gonna call? The media is never going to call them out of this. They're never going to say, oh, we... We finally, we finally figured out that we should stop being so dishonest about this. No, no, no. Of course not. Because they have an agenda, folks. They're activists, not journalists. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Team Buck. It's time for Roll Call. It is indeed time for Roll Call, as the uh, gentleman announced there for us, which we always appreciate. So let's get right to it. Um, Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton to have your your voice heard here on the show or Team Buck at iHeartMedia.com. We do want to do a merch store. We want to do more Shields High podcasts on history. We're going to set up a YouTube channel. I got a book that's coming out. Uh, we got to have more people watch Pluto TV, channel 240, channel 248, the first. The first is the best channel on Pluto TV, though there's a lot of channels on Pluto TV you could check out, but you should be watching the first on Pluto TV. Um, it's just because I had a, a, a break, and I w I've been sick for like 10 days. I'm finally now, you can hear my voice is pretty normal. I had a cold that just would not would not stop. and went through these phases where I thought I was like almost better, and then something else would hurt and be bad. And Ugh, I know. Woe is me. Jane kicks it off here. Hey, Buck, I love you, and wish we had lots more little Bucks. <laughs> Whoa. Hey. <laughs> Ooh, spicy in the freedom fund. But I keep Christmas decorations up until 12th night, which is January 6th, the time the kings visited Jesus in the manger. I think this is about the same time the Greek Orthodox celebrate Christmas. Uh, Jane, I had my, I had a little mini Christmas tree, which some people say is, might be sad, but it's not sad because in New York City, you're in a mini apartment, you got to have a mini Christmas tree. I had a mini tree and the tree came down 
um, yesterday. So, you know, I, I kept it for a while. I kept it into the new year, but a little bit. But it started to get to the point where it was dried out and all the little um, uh, little pine needles were falling off of it all over the place. So that's no fun. Can't have a, can't have a messy a messy freedom hut. So we had to get rid of it. But good good things all around. Good things. Good things. Mike, Nancy Pelosi is going to sit on the impeachment paperwork until she knows for sure that Trump is going to win the election. Then she'll pull out the impeachment paperwork in an attempt to keep him from serving another term. What do you think? Check out Memories of the Alhambra. It's on Netflix from Mike. Um, Mike, I don't know. I don't know if um, that's... Mm, I got to think about that a little bit. That's possible. It's possible. I, I think she, look, I still obviously have made my, I made my bet, made my bed, so to speak. I, I think that she's going to have to tr- transmit them at some point. I don't think she can transmit them. It sounds like Vladimir, transmit this to Vladimir from Medvedev. Uh, it seems to me like she has no choice eventually, but maybe I'm wrong. Usually when I say that, though, I'm not, as you guys know. So I like the, the, the sort of false humility of maybe I'm wrong usually works out in my favor. Booyah. Uh, let's see what we have next in the mix here. Oh, and Alhambra, yeah, I'll check that out on Netflix. You don't like to do that. Uh, Kenneth, South Front ran a story on the Ukrainian armed forces back in December. When discussing the Javelin anti-tank guided missiles, they stated that these have yet to be used in combat and seem to be held in reserve. Well, Kenneth, this has come up before. They are held in reserve because now there's an understanding with the Russian with the Russian provision of armored personnel carriers and tanks and things that they will be destroyed if they are used in an offensive capacity. So it's kind of like the assurance of destruction from knowing that they have and can deploy these missiles uh, to destroy armor has neutralized the advantage, the clear advantage that the Russian-backed Ukrainian separatists had from having Russian-provided armor, if that makes sense. So just knowing that they are there is a has now been an impediment to their use. So it has been highly, highly effective in that regard. Um, let's see here. We have Kyle. Buck, I appreciate Joe Biden simply for the comparison he allows us to make. Look at what President Trump is actually being impeached for. Basically nothing. Now, imagine what actually happened was the FBI on Trump's watch used a false foreign source as a predicate to get a secret FISA warrant to wiretap Hunter Biden and his associates. And by virtue of the two-hop rule, listen on Joe Biden himself. Heads would explode. Great show as always. Merry Christmas. Thanks, Kyle. And uh, indeed, appreciate your analysis on that one. Um, And yeah, we have uh, more roll call for your listening enjoyment here in just a moment. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. All right, and now here we are with our uh, continuation of the roll call, which is the best call. And uh, it's producer Mark's favorite call because it means the show's almost over, which means he gets to go back to Long Island and his new bride. He gets to hang out, which is great. Um, I, of course, disappear to my, uh, my, my actual freedom hut, which is definitely a hut and not a castle. It is a, a cozy, little, cozy little joint. All right, we're doing the Facebook here, facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. If, if you want to send me your thoughts, you want to send me what you got going on, please do. And we get to it with, um, 
uh, Wendy, who writes, used to be uh, somebody who voted for Dems like Kerry. No more. Now I'm solidly a Trump supporter. Well, the good news, Wendy, is that we all make mistakes, but also we should all be able to achieve some degree of forgiveness, dare I say, <laughs> some degree of, uh, uh, you know, making amends. So I, I'm glad you're a Trump supporter now. God bless. Thank you for uh, sharing your thoughts here. We do appreciate it. Adam, Buck, on Friday's podcast, you had an echo on your voice for the entire podcast on the iHeart app, Shields High. Well, that sounds like Shields low to me. Uh, and, uh, Producer Mark, what is going on here? Do we know that this happened? I mean, I can go back and listen, but... Nothing changed on no, our end. Nothing up. changed on it. I don't know, man. We got to check because I didn't hear that from anybody else. So yeah, usually. I, I will. I take listener complaints yeah, of course, seriously. He does. I, he will, takes... I will listen. We should actually have like a little. We, we do want to set up a camera here so you guys can see producer Mark. That's 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 a Christmas present I haven't given him yet, but we're working on it. But we, I want to set up a little producer Mark complaint jar. And every time we get one of these emails, we have to drop like, you know, drop a quarter in there or something okay. and at the end of the, uh, you know. We'll, we'll go out. We'll we get need a lot of quarters. We'll go, <laughs> we'll go out. We'll get gluten-free Chinese food together oh. at the end of the year with the with the producer Mark. Gluten-free Chinese food. What is that? It's good. It's just Chinese food that doesn't have. But it, I can't think of anything Chinese food other than like general so chicken or something well, that would have. Chinese food is all gluten. Like it's all gluten. Really? Oh, yeah. because of the sauce. Soy sauce. I didn't think of that. All okay. soy sauce. Okay. So everything has either flour or soy sauce or both. A lot of it has both. But if you just replace the flour and replace the soy sauce, then, <laughs> like, nothing in Chinese food has gluten because of the ingredients. Yeah, because rice doesn't yeah, have rice gluten. rice is fine. Um, I was thinking, like, chicken and broccoli, but I forgot about the soy sauce. Yeah, the soy sauce, yeah. and the, the, that's where you get nailed. Um, so, yeah, and all, but tamari sauce, I've, it tastes just like soy sauce. I cannot tell the difference, and that's all. You change that, and you're, you're good to go. It looks like soy sauce, tastes like soy sauce. People think that they're like, they think gluten-free is like fat-free. Fat-free is gross. Fat-free food is bad. Mm. When they take the fat out of food, very bad. When they use fake sugar and things, very bad. Gluten-free is just different. It's just different. I would so, try gluten-free Chinese food. Now, gluten-free pizza, other than cauliflower pizza, not happening. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll, mm. we'll make it happen. Richard Buck, happy who's your hellos from the third shift. I hope you had a great Christmas and a happy New Year's and a birthday. I want to start to try and get your show added to local talk radio show, uh, local talk radio station here in Raleigh. Do you have any pointers on what to say or who to talk to at a radio station? Right now, 9 p.m. to midnight slot is all podcasts, which would be good if they were only your podcast. Is there a certain person who decides radio programming? Keep up the awesome work in Shields High. Well, Richard, you're certainly welcome to write into the local uh, radio affiliate um, and request that the person would be called the program director, um, or the, sometimes it's a station manager, depends on the station. Um, but yeah, the program director is usually the one who determines what shows go where. And I would certainly love, Raleigh's a great town. I would love to be added to any station. I don't, are we on a station in Raleigh already though? No, we're not. Okay. So yeah, put us in Raleigh. That'd be great. You know, Richard, get some of your buddies to send in emails too. At least get us on the radar of the folks there. But um, there you go. Uh Michael writes in with, this has your name written all over it. Wow. He sent a photo of big strips of chocolate-covered bacon. You know, we are just talking yesterday about bacon bar in New York and how bacon can even be mixed into ice cream. I have had at, I think it was Voodoo Donut in Portland, Oregon, I had a maple-glazed donut with bacon topping which was and this is when i used to eat gluten this is right before i figured out i had celiac disease 
Um, it was amazing, I will say. So when it's when it's done properly, it's really good. I, I recently went to a uh, Brazilian steakhouse, and you know how they have like the the salad bar, which isn't really salad. At a Brazilian steakhouse, they had maple glazed bacon. Oh yeah, it was amazing. amazing. Oh, it's yeah. amazing. Um, the best thing at the Trump International Hotel in D.C., which is actually a great hotel, it's really nice. Uh, the best thing there is the bacon that they pull out and they have it hanging almost like on a clothesline like you're getting your clothing to dry out back in the day and they take a little flame gun a little flamethrower like thing and they in front of you they sort of flame the bacon um i guess also known as cooking it but no they they flame it and it's already been glazed with some sweet sauce Whew, it's worth the like 25 bucks or whatever it's expensive um that, that is it is not a cheap hotel Roger writes, looking forward to another year, Buck. Roger, so are we, man. We're still here. Producer Mark, producer Buck, we are still employed. We got uh, producer Nick doing Overwatch for us. He's kind of like our sniper from like, you know, from behind uh, the the front assault team. You know, he's making, he's like doing Overwatch for us, making sure. Producer Mark is clearly the machine gunner of this fire team. And, you know, I guess I'm the guy on point with the, uh, with the M4. But producer Mark, he's, he's, he's a, He's a heavy gunner. You know what I mean? We got producer Nick doing the sniper situation, and I'm uh, I'm a salt team kicking in the door. Uh, Taylor writes, how is PBR? I've been to one. It's the best event I've ever been to. It was constant entertainment and the best of the best performers. UFC events are a close second, but the PBR stands out above the rest. You know, Taylor, I mean, I talked about this a little bit yesterday, but I'd say that you know, PBR, one of the great things it has going for it is that the the people involved in it are, like, everyone's just there to, like, have, a, everyone's very supportive, everyone's there to have a good time. Um, it's a very unpretentious thing, very unpretentious crowd. You know, you go to a lot of these events now, you know, I went to a Knicks game recently, and you go to events and you'll see people, and they're all, everyone's in, like, their corporate suites, and there's, People are spending so much money on these events and so much money to be there and everything. And like PBR, it just had a much more relaxed atmosphere. You know, the the security guards were a little more like, yeah, it's PBR, go for it. You know, you kind of move around, take photos. They weren't checking your ticket stub every five seconds. It's just a, it's a very um, welcoming atmosphere because they just want people to be there and check it out. And, you know, they got the guy who's the, I don't know if you call him the head clown. I don't know. My dad is a wealth of knowledge about PBR, watches a lot of PBR, knows the riders. He actually gets very excited. He knows quite a bit about the Bulls. And producer Mark, I'll tell you, do you know the Bulls get a score? That the highest score is 50 points for the rider, 50 points for the Bull. The Bull gets a score as well. What yeah. kind of reward does the Bull get? Um, I don't know, actually. Oh, that's, but, a, that's a good yeah. question. But there are Bulls that are like the most formidable of the Bulls. So like, do they advertise like, see this Bull? At Madison Square Garden. People like, know that the Bulls that? have cool names, you okay. know, and they, there are Bulls. I was just curious if it was like horse racing, like you're going to Belmont to see a specific horse no, usually. The, the horse is obviously the superstar and the, the su- jockey, yeah. no one knows. Does anyone know the jockey's names? Really big into horse racing people. Do, That's yes. it. I mean, yeah. those are the only people. No, but, yeah. but people will know because the horses also get these cool names like, you know, I don't know. Secretariat. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Thank you for pulling one up there because I was blanking out, but they have gold. We recently had a Triple Crown winner. I could not tell you the name of it, the horse. Yeah, it would just be interesting to see, like, what are the coolest names that, that the horses have had. But they've, they're very cool names. Yeah, and the Bulls are – the riders are certainly more famous than the Bulls are, but the Bulls get a – they get a score. And, 
you know, there's a little bit also of like there there is a, a certain degree of, of risk and danger in this whole process, too. And so when sometimes the people get the riders get uh, stomped on, you know, there's a big um, uh, background in of Brazilian uh, riders. There's a lot hmm. of Brazilians in PBR, which I think is interesting. They just have a culture of it there. I guess it's kind of the almost like I know gauchos are Argentine, Argentine cowboys, but the gaucho and Brazilian version of that, whatever it's called, um, they uh, they have a big tradition of it there. I did not know that. Yeah. I, it's not just a Texan thing. I was thing. not aware of that. Hmm? Milwaukee, which means the good land. Um, so, yeah. Well, Milwaukee's had its fair share of visitors. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, the PBR is really cool. I highly recommend you guys go check it out. I had a great time there. And it's uh, if it's, it's something you've never done, it's an experience you should definitely have at some point. Uh, it's just fun. It's fun to, go, fun to go see. I've really been making an effort recently to go see more stuff. To go yeah. do more I mean, things. you're in New York City. You've got Broadway right stuff. here. Yeah. To, you know. I mean, I'm just burning through, like, whatever, you know, retirement money I would have right now sure. by going to see, like, PBR and things like that. Just so. PBR? You haven't seen any shows lately? You don't you live right in that general oh, area? Oh, I saw I went, I went. saw Moulin Rouge a little oh, while back. That is not what I was expecting. Uh, I, that was, you know, I took a friend. I meant, like, Dear Evan Hansen, you know, Come From Away, stuff like that. Oh, like like what the, what like the sophisticated, shows. like, yeah. fancy. Well, Moulin Rouge is on Broadway. Oh, is it? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Okay. Oh, it's the Broadway production of it. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I, I didn't, didn't go, know I didn't go was alone. I was, like, sitting there by myself taking notes. See, um, if I lived in Manhattan, I would just be doing all the lotteries constantly and, like, just trying to win stuff so I could get cheap shows. How do you do that? There's online services where you sign up online, and if you win the lottery, you get an email, and you got $20 tickets or however. It's different for every show, but... Really? Like the Hamilton lottery is the cheapest but hardest to win. Huh. Yeah. I haven't seen Hamilton. I haven't either. I kind of want to see it just because I have a feeling that I may not like it. And, and I don't uh, think you're going to like it very much. I, I have a feeling I'm probably not going to be that, just given the, all the hype around here. You, and I you're saw, a history buff, so you would get this, get it, yeah. Correct. Uh, I also, you know, I saw the Book of Mormon, which people thought was so, so funny. I mean, it's clever in some parts, but it was like, there's so much cursing, it was so profane, and I'm not somebody who... You, you know, cursing like anything else, you know, it's, it's like explosions in movies. Like, I can handle some cursing. I can handle some explosions in movies. When every three seconds it's another boom, bang, boom, you know, it just turns well, into just noise. It was the South Park guys. I mean, come on. You know what I mean? You expect it. Yeah, yeah. There was just a lot of, I don't know, it was, it was not really as good as I thought it was. Have you seen Come From Away? No. That was a story of um, the Canadian city that got all the planes on 9-11 when they grounded everyone. Huh. And they made it into, like, like, they were amazingly hospitable and, like, it's a musical. One of the best shows I've ever seen. I teared up at the end, and you know I'm a grump. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I got to check that out. Yeah. Is it's it still really, playing? It is. Come From Away. Come From Away. I think it won the Tony for Best Musical a couple years ago. All right. I got to like I gotta find the future Mrs. Sexton yeah. and take her to, so I got to find her first, but then I got to do Come From Away. Okay. Okay, cool. I know there's options there. Yeah, we'll huh. figure it out. <laughs> Producer Mark, you're... You're a troublemaker. All right, that's going to be it for today's show. Hope you've all uh, enjoyed everything going on here in the Freedom Hut, as always. And uh, we'll be back with you tomorrow, same time, same place. Tell somebody about the show. Pass the buck, please. Shields high.